Good afternoon. Happy post-Thanksgiving. Hope you guys had a great uh, weekend. If you have your Bibles, please start getting ready to turn it to John chapter 13. Measurements are important on weekends, especially like this weekend, when knowing the right measurement makes all the difference. For example, how big of a turkey will feed the number of guests you invited for Thanksgiving dinner? How much food will be enough? Two bags of stuffing or three? Three cans of cranberry or four? For those of you who are into Black Friday shopping, how big of a TV is worth it for the cost and the quality? LED, QLED, OLED, Crystal, UHD. Anyone know the difference? Those of you who do all your Christmas shopping on Black Friday, what size sweater does mom wear again? What size shoes does dad wear again? Because you can find the best deal, but if you don't have the right size, it's useless. For the choice, as we are waiting for our new house, measurements were so critical as we are considering what furniture to buy. We went after Thanksgiving dinner to measure our place. Will our current sofa, dining table fit this certain room and that room, etc.? Again, measurements are important for various areas of our lives, but they're also significant for our spiritual lives as well. For example, Ephesians 4.13 says, the saints ought to be equipped for the work of the ministry until they all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Simply what this verse is saying is that our spiritual maturity should reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, what is that measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? In our passage this afternoon, we get a picture of what that measure of Christ's love for His people is. As the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And today's passage helps us to do just that. So as we continue our study through John's gospel, uh, from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 35, I want to share with you the four measures of Jesus' love for His people. Four measures of Jesus' love for His people. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, the length of Jesus' love, verses 1 through 4, the depth of Jesus' love, verse 4b through 9, the breadth or the width of Jesus' love, verses 10 through 30, and fourth, the height of His love, verses 31 through 35. I pray for anyone here who needs a fresh reminder of God's love for you, that this word will show you just how much Jesus went through and endured for you to prove His love you. I pray that Jesus' love will challenge us in how we ought to love others. And if you're not a Christian here today or visiting with us, you are so very welcome. Thank you so much for coming here and being with us today. We're praying for you that one of the reasons you may come back next week and keep coming back is because you see here in this community of God's people a love that is different than anywhere else in the world. And we pray through this gathering that you would experience God's love. So let's go to our passage Please follow along with your Bibles open as I read and preach from God's Word from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 35. It says this, 
Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What is the measure of Jesus' love for his people? Point number one, let's consider the length of his love. Verses one through four. Look with me to verse 1 again. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them 
to the end. Inspired by this verse, the late theologian and pastor of a 10th Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, James Montgomery Boyce, writes this, that chapters 13 through 17, which contain the final discourses of the Lord with his disciples just before the crucifixion, are the holy of holies of Scripture. He says, and I quote, Nowhere in the entire Bible does the child of God feel that he is walking on more holy ground. For here, more than in any other portions of Scripture, the child of God hears the voice of Jesus leading him into greater understanding of his new place before the Father and consequently also of his new position in the world. These chapters contain teachings about heaven, the new commandment, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the mutual union of Christ with the disciples and the disciples with Christ, as well as Jesus' intercession, his prayer for us. To what can we compare these chapters? Boyce continues to say, they can only be compared to love letters. In this case, love letters from the Lord. For here, the one who is great and faithful bridegroom of the church speaks to those who are themselves the church and assures them of his special and enduring love for them. Again, he loved them to the end. Such is the length of Jesus' love. So two subpoints. Subpoint one, the certainty of Jesus' love. And subpoint two, the promise or the faithfulness of Jesus' love for his people. So let's take a closer look. The certainty of Jesus' love. Verse one tells us it was before the feast of the Passover. It was the final Passover for Jesus. And it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So whereas previously Jesus repeated, my hour had not yet come, John 2, 4, My time has not yet come in John 7, 6. And as the author of this gospel, John, repeated, his hour had not yet come in John 7, 30. Uh, Because his hour had not yet come in John 8, 20. Here in our passage in John 13, 1, just hours before Jesus was to be crucified on the cross, Jesus says Jesus knew that his hour had come. So make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, since the start of Jesus' ministry as early as in John chapter 3, Jesus made it very, very clear. His purpose, his mission, his primary objective was that he was to be the sacrificial lamb, to be slaughtered as our sinless substitute on the cross for our sins on this specific Passover. From eternity past, the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection had been God's ultimate plan of redemption for the salvation of his people. So understand and know and believe that Jesus wasn't God's backup plan. Jesus wasn't God's plan B. He was the long-awaited prophecy fulfilled, unveiled, and accomplished. Amen? J.C. Ryle observes the significance of this historical fact, noting that it is one of the few dates we know for certainty of the events in our Lord's life is, in fact, the time of his crucifixion. Of the time of his birth and baptism, we know nothing, but that he died on this Passover, we may be quite sure. Hence, that Jesus came to die, it's certain, but why? The reason why Jesus had to die is just as critical, which is the context in which the length or the extent of Jesus' love is shown to us, again, to the end. Now consider subpoint two, the faithfulness of his love. Jesus knew perfectly that his disciples would forsake him like cowards, didn't he? How they would all scatter in fear just hours after this very supper. But that didn't prevent Jesus from loving them with all their weaknesses to the very end. Jesus knew precisely 
that he was about to suffer within 24 hours. But the knowledge and foresight of it did not absorb his thoughts so as to make him forget his little flock of followers, did it? Christ, in the immediate foresight of his crucifixion, thought of others and loved on his disciples to the end. In one occasion, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith, doesn't he? How long shall I put up with you? In another occasion, Jesus says again, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Yet his love is unchanging, enduring, persevering, and faithful to the end. Hallelujah. Why? Why? Did you catch the critical phrase in verse 1? Having loved his own. If you are not used to hear about God's love this way, take no offense by this peculiarity of Jesus' love. Just as you wouldn't expect a faithful husband to write deep, intimate love letters to multiple women, such love would be adultery, hypocrisy, deception. Jesus, our faithful bridegroom, singularly loves his disciples, his sheep, his elect, his bride, the church. And it's clarified how Jesus loves his own in verses 2 through 4. Look with me to those verses, verses 2 to 4. It says this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, before we talk about Judas, I want to make sure we don't let anything else distract us from the main point of these verses and what the author John is intending for us to grasp. See it by his use of repetition. Verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. And in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So the, the point, the emphasis, the repetition is here for us to know. Jesus came to earth from God and would go back to God. Why? For us to know, for us to grasp his love. From start to finish, from beginning to end, generation to generation, his covenant was made and his covenant was kept. The purpose of his coming was because he loves his bride, the church, to the end. Again, J.C. Ryle writes, The love of Christ to sinners is the very essence and the marrow of the gospel, that he should love us at all and care for our souls that he should love us before we even loved him or even knew anything about him, that he should love us so much as to come into the world to save us, take our nature upon himself, bear our sins, and die for us on the cross. It is a kind of love to which there is nothing like among men. The narrow selfishness of human nature cannot fully comprehend it. It is one of those things which even the angels of God long to look into, according to 1 Peter 1.12. It is a truth which Christian preachers and teachers should proclaim incessantly, Ryle says, and never be weary of proclaiming. Close quote. Don't miss also the very important phrase in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. You see, it had all come down to this very moment. The whole history of the Passover was eminently calculated to make men understand Christ's work of redemption. God's salvation plan was zeroing in on Jesus' shoulders on this very Passover night. And Jesus, knowing the Father's plan and purpose and power was all on him, all the dignity, all the majesty of his person and office, willingly, what does he do? Willingly lays down his life for his beloved. 
One theologian writes, Never before had a human heart faced what Jesus did in that garden, and never again will God require it. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if for whatever reason you feel you are unloved today, because of some circumstance in your life that happened in the past, or perhaps is happening in the present, you think you are unlovable, unworthy, or unacceptable, or because of some sin God stopped loving you, know this, remember this, hear the words of God, the truth. You are worthy of Jesus' life. You are worthy of Jesus' death. You are worthy of Jesus' mission. He did not condescend from glory to Golgotha for any other reason. He came to die and rise to prove his love for you. Amen? May these words, brothers and sisters, be a fresh, life-giving, head-lifting, soul-comforting, hope-inspiring truth for you today. Jesus died and rose again so that you may know that the Creator and the Sovereign Ruler of the universe loves you, that He always loved you from eternity past. He loves you now, this moment, and He will always love you to the end. His love is certain love. His love is faithful love to the end, because that is who he is. As John prayed, God is love. Amen? His love is long-lasting. His love is everlasting. Well, we're just going to touch on Judas here in point one, because he is the subject of a larger portion of the next verses. But notice the important insight in verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. This, of course, is not the first time Judas is associated with the devil. Back in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus actually calls Judas a devil. Well, here's the thing. Months had passed in proximity with Jesus and his disciples, seeing his works, hearing his words. Months had passed, yet Judas did not repent. Months had passed, yet Judas plotted and premeditated his satanic ploy. He conspired in partnership with the devil until this night of the betrayal. Brothers and sisters, may Judas's example be a lesson for all of us that Jesus is long-suffering with us. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone to come to repentance. So brothers and sisters, if you are a believer and a professor of Christianity, of Jesus the Christ as Lord and Savior, and you are actively engaging in sin, may his kindness lead you to repentance today. Furthermore, consider this. If you are going to be a co-conspirer with anyone, be sure you don't co-inspire with the devil. It doesn't end well. Conspiring, plotting, ploying with the devil does not end well. Examine your heart. Examine your speech. Examine your worship, your singing, your gratitude, your humility, your scripture reading, your prayer, your discipleship, your evangelism. Are you conspiring with God and his people? Or are you conspiring more with the enemy and the things of this world? If you want to stand on one side or the other, let me challenge you. Stand on the side of God. Stand firm on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because against such things, there is no law. What that means, you can't go wrong. Don't conspire with Satan and and choose division, gossip, speculation, assumption, presumption, pride, selfishness, self-righteousness, self-protection. Seeing the worst in people, don't do that. May this be the day you look to Christ and partner back with Christ. 
1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The longevity of God's love through Jesus shows a clearer picture of the measure of his love, doesn't it? That's point number one. Point number two, what is the measure of Jesus' love for his people? Point number two, consider the depths of Jesus' love from 4b to verse 9. It says this, He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hand and my head. How deep is Jesus' love for his disciples? Let's consider two subpoints: his humility and his sacrifice. So subpoint number one, his humility. With all things given into his hands, all the power, all the status at his disposal, some might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and swift confrontation and to devastate and crush Judas with a blow of his divine wrath. Certainly he could have, right? Instead, Jesus, our humble Savior, some humble master, what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer Judas. Having given many proofs of his remarkable affection all throughout his earthly ministries to his disciples, Jesus now gives one more stunning proof of his love by washing their feet. On the last evening before his own death, Jesus shows that he loved them to the very end of his ministry. Now, there's much we can talk about regarding this very familiar account. We can analyze the details of Jesus' posture. There's a lot of commentary uh, that talk about that. Uh, we can talk a lot about Peter's compulsive responses to Jesus in line with his impulsive character, so on and so forth. But I want to point us to the significance of what Jesus was doing and the implications of Jesus, what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Because just as Jesus answers Peter in verse 7, right? Look at verse 7. It says this, Jesus answered him, what I am doing now, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. So what was it Jesus wanted his 12 disciples to understand uh, then afterward? And what was it that Jesus wanted his followers uh, to understand now? What, what are we to understand of what was going on? Well, culturally, in the first century, the idea of washing one another's feet was just simply shocking and unthinkable. Even today, can I take some volunteers? Deacon of foot washing, anybody? Right? It was a task normally reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Some Jews even insisted Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others and ought to be reserved for Gentile slaves. That's how lowly it was seen by the Jews. And so Peter's shock and response, Lord, do you wash my nasty feet? Is somewhat understandable, isn't it? How low did Jesus go to prove his love for us? One commentator says, his act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning and is simultaneously a display of his love, a symbol of his saving cleansing, 
and a model of Christian conduct. It was a demonstration of his claim, I am among you as one who serves, according to Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. You see, this act of service was pointing to something greater, how deep Jesus' love goes for us. So consider sub-point number two, his sacrifice. In the second part of verse 8, Jesus teaches us why such humbling was necessary and what Jesus' act of service was pointing to. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here, what the disciples could not have understood then, although Jesus told them a number of times, right? Many times Jesus said what exactly was going to happen to himself. He's going to die. He's going to go back to the Father. But they failed to understand it. And so here, what we as his disciples now understand by faith through the Bible, we understand that this was pointing to something greater. So Jesus' incarnation, right, we understand to be spoken this way from Scripture. It says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. You see, his lowering himself from eternity, his humbling himself in the likeness of men, his humiliating himself in the form of a servant, his sacrificial and selfless giving of himself even to death on the cross was in order to reach down to the lowliest of all depraved sinners like you and me. The Bible says, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It also says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is, who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news wretched sinners like you and me will ever hear, that God, the ruler of the universe, who created all things, who orders and sustains all things, created us in love. Why? For us to know his infinite love within himself. Yet man distrusted God and deliberately disobeyed God's word, choosing to be gods unto ourselves. And we continuously, don't we, make that choice daily again and again and again, even today. And therefore, we were eternally separated from God, cast out of God's perfect and holy presence, severed in our relationship with him by our own willful rebellion, incapable, impossible to save ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying curse and power of sin and the judgment of God looming over us. But God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for us to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth of his love, and his glorious plan was unfolded throughout human history, throughout the centuries, proofs, promises planted, and prophecies proclaimed all completely fulfilled by Jesus' sinless life by Jesus' substitute death, by Jesus' victorious resurrection on the third day. Jesus paid the debt that we would have paid in eternal hell, conquering sin, Satan, and death once and for all, that whosoever would call on Him would have new and eternal life. Hallelujah. Dear friends and visitors, if you are here this afternoon and you know yourself to not be a Christian 
or if you are not sure that you are, thank you again so much for being here with us to hear God's word. But allow me these couple minutes to speak to you specifically. Contrary to what the world believes, your sins will not just be forgotten or dissipate into thin air. If you think so, you don't know the seriousness of your sins. Scripture says God will render to each one according to his works. God must punish sin because he is the righteous, just, and good God. If I were to punch an old man, you would think I'm a jerk, right? If I were to punch a baby, you would call the police, right? If I were to punch the president, they would lock me up as a terrorist. If I were to sin against the holy God of the universe, eternity of life sentences would not be sufficient to pay for my crimes against him. But God is a God of mercy and love. That's why the sinless Son of God himself had to come be my substitute, to be your substitute on our behalf for our salvation. He paid completely for the sentences of our sins. He satiated the wrath of God reserved for all of our unrighteousness. In exchange, he imputed to us his righteousness. That's the length. That's the depth of his love for you. So today, Dear friend, dear visitor, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, hear his voice, repent of your sins, believe Jesus died and rose again for you, trust him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore. I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Pastor Jeremy will be standing at the outside door. We'd be happy to talk to you about how to follow Jesus. Don't leave this place without talking to someone, anyone, about how you could follow Jesus, and we would love to pray with you. Dear beloved members of New Covenant Baptist Church, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are you feeling down perhaps, feeling low? Well, consider the depths of how far and how low Jesus came for you. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. His arms are strong. His arms are long. It reaches low and it reaches down to save you again and again and again. So brother or sister, if you are here feeling weary or discouraged, his invitation for you, run into his everlasting arms, cling to his promises, stand firm on him, your firm foundation, hope with confidence and joy in the surety of his present help and his salvation. But perhaps there are some of you who are still wondering, but is Jesus' love really sufficient to cover all my sins? I get it. Once I was saved, Christ loves me and forgives me, all that. But what about my current struggling? What about my constant depression? What about my continuing addiction? What about my ever-gnawing doubts and insecurities? That leads us to our next point. What is the measure of Jesus' love for his people? Point number three, consider the breadth, the width of Jesus' love from verses 10 through 30. Now, I'm just going to touch on the highlights of these verses. So here are three brief subpoints: The expanse of his love, the overflow of his love, subpoint number two, and subpoint number three, the clarity of his love. For anyone who has ever thought, how does Jesus dying over 2,000 years ago apply to me, matter to me, affect me? You should understand the expanse or the reach of his love. Romans 5, verses 18 through 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. You see, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the truly God and truly man, His death and resurrection was once 
and for all perfect and sufficient sacrifice for all of his people. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples in verse 10a. Look at verse 10, the first part again. It says this, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You see, in Christ, we are entirely washed from all of our sins. Brothers and sisters, believe it. We are washed from all of our sins. Hallelujah in terms of our justification before God, completely absolved and free from all spot of guilt and are counted without blame before God. That is our justification through Jesus Christ. Amen? Yet the Christian life is one of repentance. This is also true. We need to daily wash our feet or our feet get stinky. We need daily washing and guidance through God's word and prayer to daily confess our failures, to daily sue for our pardon, to daily petition for his aid. Learn also, sub-point number two, Jesus' overflowing love from verses 12 through 17. Look with me there to those verses. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and had resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If then I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The final discipleship lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples before he would return to the Father in heaven was to do as I do to go as low as I go, to love as I have loved, and to serve as I have served. I need you to listen up very, very closely, okay, because this is very important. Here's the question. Did Jesus mean for his disciples to literally go around and wash people's dirty, stinky feet? However you take this is going to be a problem or freedom. So listen carefully. It is well known that the church of Rome took Jesus' words literally. And once every year around Easter, the Pope, as the head of the Romish church, publicly washed the feet of certain poor persons who got ready for the occasion. I think this is the reason why Jesus asks his disciples at the end of verse 12, do you understand? Do you get it, what I'm trying to show you, what I'm teaching you? Because if you don't understand, you do what the popes did. So are you understanding? Do you understand what I am teaching you, what I mean for you to get? Because the absurdity that Jesus was commanding literal foot washings or to make foot washings as a sacred rite as we would do baptism and Lord's Supper in order to show our obedience to Him is missing the point entirely. It's legalism. It's workspace moralism. Do this. Do that is not the gospel. So then, the true lesson of these verses was in a spiritual sense. It was a spiritual lesson. Jesus was teaching His disciples they ought to be willing to wait on one another, serve one another, minister to one another, even in the least and the lowest things, that they should not think nothing too low or humble or menial to undertask when it comes to serving one another. If they can show love and kindness and condescension to another, they should happily, joyfully do it as Christ had done for them. Jesus was breaking through all cultural, societal, ethnical barriers through his service, teaching an example. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, don't miss the important point there. Disciples are to wash one another's feet. Don't go around washing everybody else's feet. 
wash one another's feet. While Christ does not exclude washing the feet of those who are on the outside of the church, namely Judas, we ought to pay careful and intentional effort in serving fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and the body of Christ, which is our third subpoint: the clarity of Jesus' love. Did you notice how many times in these verses Jesus made a clear distinction? Who is in and who is out? Who is clean by Jesus' cleansing and who was not? End of verse 10. And these are direct quotations of Jesus' spoken words to or about Jesus recorded for us. And you are very clean at the end of verse 10, but not every one of you. Verse 18. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 26 and 27, Jesus answering the questions from the disciples, Lord, who is it? Jesus answers, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread and dipped it. So when he has dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And verse 28, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Throughout this entire account, even as mentioned previously, there is no doubt in Jesus' mind, Jesus was not being deceived at all by Judas, who is and what he was aiming to do. Jesus is not fooled. Yet Jesus repeatedly warns, yet Jesus intentionally separates, and Jesus patiently loves. Jesus patiently loves. This is one of the reasons why we as a church make it very clear who is a Christian and who is not. We openly address non-Christians in our midst because we don't want to falsely assure anyone just because you are sitting in this room that you are of Christ or you desire to follow Christ, although we would, not, we would want nothing more than exactly that. And This is Jesus' way. This is the biblical way. This is our way of respecting you and loving you by speaking to you God's truth. Again, we want to avoid falsely making you assume you are a Christian when you are not. We believe the scripture teaches that the church is made up of blood-bought, born-again believers who loves Jesus, who love God's word, who love God's church, and love to share God's good news to those who do not believe. So we sincerely urge you, if you are not a Christian, as Jesus did, what you are going to do, do quickly. What you are going to do, do quickly. So you have a choice, right? Repent, believe, trust, and live for Christ today. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Jesus' love is clear and singular, and it is for you if you would look to Christ. Call on him today. This is the breadth and width of God's love. His arms are open wide for all repenting sinners, no matter who or where or what you are. Fourth and finally, what is the measure of Jesus' love for you and me? Consider the height the height of his love from verses 31 through 35. Look with me to those verses. I'll just make two very brief points. Subpoint one, his love is glorious. Subpoint number two, his love is glorifying. Jacob, I hope you are enjoying all these subpoints. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all will know, people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What Jesus says in these verses, 
were exclusively to the 11 disciples minus the betrayer Judas, as it says in verse 31, after Judas had left. Now the air is clear. Jesus and all the disciples are like, whew, the air is clear. What was held back by a stranger's presence is now removed, and Jesus teaches them, and them only, the height, the height of his love, the supreme key, the high note of his love, the basis of a new commandment. The reason why Jesus was able to love as he loves, the reason why Jesus' love is long and deep and wide is because his love is from on high. It's what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 108, verse 4. Write this verse down. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 108, verse 4. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Why? Look at verses 31 through 32. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Just in those two verses, the word glorify and glorified is there five times. Well, why is God the Father glorified and why is the Son also glorified? Jesus was speaking of the finality of Jesus' heavenly mission, that it was indeed at hand. The highest and the most glorious work to be ever accomplished was at hand. God's great, great, massive, glorious love was being made known to us to the full measure. Through Christ's finished work on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus' love is indeed glorious love. Furthermore, Jesus says in verse 33 and 34, where I am going... You cannot come. So now, verse 34, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. What Jesus was saying to his disciples is, I'll be in heaven, reigning as your sovereign king. But you, you, my disciples, be my representatives. Show, extend, live, and proclaim my love to one another. And verse 35, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, your love for one another, your unity in diversity, your service, your sacrifice, your care, your humility toward one another will be the testimony of God's glorious and infinite love. Just as I glorified my Father, you glorify me in the way you love one another. Amen? His love for us doesn't just stay with us. We don't just receive God's love and, oh, okay, we feel nice about it. No, it overflows to others. Our love glorifies Him when we love one another. So, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what does your love, what does how you love one another show about God's love in you? Let me ask that again. What does your love for one another show about God's love in you? I'm asking the question, are you properly loved? Do you truly comprehend and grasp this love? How you serve and care for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, not just your best friends, not just people you like to be around, but how you love your body, the body, how you are doing loving this church family. Those are questions for you to examine. May we come to know and understand more and more what is the length, what is the depth what is the breadth and what is the height of Jesus' love for you and me? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon in this season of thanksgiving. Though there are so many reasons for us to grumble and complain and be ungrateful for, Father, your love reminds us we have no excuse. Your salvation, your word, your promise, the fellowship of your servants and people around us reminds us we have so many reasons to be grateful for and to glorify you through our lives. Help us to do it faithfully. Help us to know deeper, truer, what is the length, height, depth, and breadth of your amazing love. Thank you for Christ in whom you have shown that awesome, amazing love toward us. We give him glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.